Survival Podcast. Welcome to an episode of Friday Flashbacks. After 15 years and hundreds of interview shows, we decided to run them as flashbacks every Friday, beginning with the oldest of them and going forward. There's a tremendous library of wisdom in all the great interviews we've done over the years, so sit back and enjoy. Whether this is your first time or even your second time around with today's episode, I'm sure you will enjoy it and learn a lot from it. And remember, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do just by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get access to over 70 awesome discount codes on products and services you likely already use. Things like seeds, cannabis products, food storage items, custom roasted coffee, and even cool stuff like ammo and moonshine stills and more. So support the show. Get all your money back and more. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. Now let's get into today's Friday Flashback. And today, folks, we are rewinding back to September the 22nd, 2010. That's just a little less than 14 years we're going back in time on this flashback. Originally episode 515, it was an interview with Chris Martinson. Um, when I did this interview, Chris was beginning to get known. I was really beginning to get known. He's much better known today. And he's really not much better known today due to his outstanding work on evaluating systems and supply lines and economics, which is what this interview is about. What he's most known for today is he was one of the loudest voices, because he already had a good following to work with, during COVID. And I want to say a few things about that. I Usually my, my intros to these are pretty short, but this is just kind of like we're back 14 years, but this is temporal today. So I really respect Chris a lot. And because the reason I respect Chris is it takes a person with integrity to come out and say, well, I got this wrong, and here's my new assertion, and to continuously do that with a dynamic and changing thing like COVID was. I think when COVID started, almost all of us were very cautious in the very beginning, and many of us in the liberty space had different levels of spider-sense tingling going, something's not right, but a disease is a disease. That lasted about a week with me before I came out and said, here's what you do to treat it, go on with your life, all of this is bullshit. It took Chris longer. Now, his scientific background is in the world of pathogens, which you'll hear a little bit about today. The more a person knows about disease, the more likely they are to really say, hey, hey, be careful. When COVID was still not really in the United States, Chris was sounding the alarm about the disease. After it got here and we got more data from the real world, his message began to shift to, hey, early treatment works. In fact, he changed his handle in some social media outlets to Chris Early Treatment Markinson, Martinson. So I thought that was a good thing. And over time, he's become one of the loudest voices in opposition to all of the phony science that was done in opposition to the bullshit that's been done hiding the, the side effects of the vaccine, the bullshit that's been done to make an ineffective vaccine appear effective to the public, etc. And so it, it gives me a lot of pleasure that my first interaction with Chris actually goes back before this 
interview. Chris and I were talking back channel. You hear a little bit about that today. Uh, he sent me a disc. That's how long ago it was. You know, nobody uses a disc anymore. With uh, uh, the, the the subject of today of today's flashback uh, crash course uh, on it, which looked at all of our supply line systems and showed how brittle they were. Does Chris get an A plus as a prognosticator? Uh, from crash course as to what lies in our future and what lied in our future, giving now we can go back, you know, 15 years since he did that video or a series of videos. I would say he does not get an A. Probably gets a B minus. If you are looking into the future and making predictions, a B minus is way better than all the people telling you what's coming, talking heads on TV. And again, the fact that he was willing to modify his p position across time which required him to acknowledge being incorrect with as big a platform and as many people listening to him as he had. I got to tell you, I'm impressed with current Chris Martinson as much as I was impressed with the Chris Martinson you're about to hear from from 14 years ago. Anyway, with that in mind, let's get ready to flash back, and I'll just let you know that uh, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And I don't have a new item of the day for you today, but it is seed starting time. And the best time in the world to get mycorrhizal fungi in touch with the roots of your plants for growing food is when you plant the seed. So if you're going to be planting seed, check out my item of the day from yesterday. It's still the item of the day today, I guess. Uh, Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungal inoculation. Read my write-up on it. It's at the survivalpodcast.com. Just go there and start scrolling down. If this, if you're listening to this like the day or two after it was published, and you'll see the write-up on it, and look at how I recommend that you use it. And when you see that, you'll realize how inexpensive it is because the instructions are really geared towards somebody growing cannabis. It doesn't say that, but trust me, it is. And when you're growing a plant that's going to produce $150, $300, $400 worth of value, you don't care that you spend a dollar on inoculating it to get more production out of it. For tomatoes, peppers, etc., fungi multiply. We can use a quarter of the recommended dose and get fantastic results. So check it out. It's not expensive, and it's a huge assurance policy that you'll get maximum production in your garden this year. With that, let's go ahead. Flashback to September 22nd, 2010, an interview with Chris Martin, originally episode 515, author of The Crash Course. And with that, I want to go ahead and get into the main body of today's show because it's going to probably be a long one because this guest has so much interesting stuff to talk about with us today. Well, folks, as I said in the intro segment, we are lucky and fortunate to have Mr. Chris Martinson on the show with us today. Chris is the originator of a program that I discovered about, oh, I guess about two and a half years ago, back when I first started doing the show, when he contacted me and sent me a DVD called The Crash Course. Um, and it really is an amazing resource. If you haven't seen it yet, I really recommend you check out The Crash Course. It's an incredible look at our global population and the resources that we require as a population. I'll warn you, it's definitely not a feel-good uh, viewing type of thing, but I think every American should see it. And after we visit with Chris today, I'm sure you're going to want to check it out, perhaps even watch it again if, like many of the listeners, you've already watched it before. Chris, welcome to TSP, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. Oh, Jack, it's my pleasure. It's uh, finally uh, good to connect with you here after you know a couple years after sending you that disc, so uh, my pleasure. 
Well, I did try to get in touch with you about six months ago, but I guess I went through the wrong channels. You've kind of become a, a bigger name than you were a few years ago. I guess we've both experienced that. And I, as we were chatting before the show started, I think it's because people are aware of how precarious things are right now. And this space seems to be something that's drawing a lot of interest. Yeah, and it's, you know, you say precarious, that's one word. Another word is it's just unsustainable. And people, uh, regular people, you know, individuals, private individuals are figuring that out. But, you know, a lot of the demand on my time now is, is that governments are starting to really figure it out and corporations and uh, institutions, all, all kinds of, this message has really started to uh, circulate much more widely and people are at least willing behind closed doors now to have some some very interesting conversations that I don't think were possible three years ago. You know, I, I've seen a lot of the same thing. I've, th- I've seen, uh, I guess when we started out, we kind of had people in, in government and all calling us a little bit loony, at least publicly, and even some public acknowledgement, acknowledgement of that stuff now. So I think you're right there. But Chris, for those who are not familiar with you or your work yet, uh, perhaps who only know about your recent work. Can you tell us a bit about your background and why you spend your efforts now letting people know about some pretty disturbing facts? Well, Jack, so this, let me do a before and after story, I guess. Um, before I came in contact with the information that's now in the crash course, uh, I was vice president of a very large company called SEIC, about 40,000 people worldwide. I'm living in a five-bathroom house on the coast of Connecticut. I've got a boat and a slip. Um, you know, it's about a mile from my house to my boat. And uh, I was, like, firmly on the American Dream bandwagon. Uh, grabbed the brass ring. There I was. Um, and I came in contact with the information that's in the crash course. It covers the economy, energy, the environment. I started with the economy. That was the first thread on the rug I started to pull up. And uh, and one thing led to another. As my wife says, it's like I fell down a, a rabbit hole, like in Alice in Wonderland, right? Tumbled down. <laughs> Um, found a bunch of data down there, and and that data led me to go forward, and, and uh, I quit my job because it was so important to me to be able to focus my attention on, on developing this message, this story, and, and um, doing, I guess, sort of a Paul Revere act. You know, I needed people to know about it. Um, and we moved, and we made a lot of changes that, you know, I think your listeners in particular would be quite familiar with around increasing our personal resilience to a future that we saw coming. But, you know, to give the complete background on this, I started my life as a scientist. Um, I'm a neurotoxicologist by training, spent a lot of time in the lab. Um, I I like data. I like numbers. I like information. Um, And I like it as clean as possible. And, and, uh, you know, after that, I was off in the world of business for a while. So, you know, you got a guy here who's, who's really comfortable with data and numbers, understood enough about finance and economics to be able to pull uh, you know, a couple things together and uh, was able to convert it into uh, this thing that's called the Crash Course Now. Yeah, I mean, really what you've done is you've done a great job of putting together a story, and it's not a story that you, you kind of made up. It's a story that you uncovered, and I don't think people were will, either willing to look at it or capable of looking at it. And you kind of broke it down. And the video that you put together, again, the Crash Course, takes an incredible and what I find to be kind of a disturbing look, it's not that disturbing to me, I guess, because I deal with this every day. But I think for a lot of people, the first time they watch this, it, it is disturbing. And I think there's there's some intent to do that there because this is, it's, again, it's not a story. you It's not like a story you made up. It's a story that you're telling that's our future. And um, when I look at it, it tells me a lot about how 
we've been operating and where we're headed if we continue to operate uh, with business as usual. I think you put it, you know, you're heading down a straight road and you don't see the big turn coming. Um, I want to discuss some more specific points with you on this, but can you first give people sort of a mile-high view of what Crash Course is all about and what its big message is? It's, it's, the big message is this. The thing I actually care about the most because it's the most urgent, it's the most pressing, it's the thing that's going to personally shape my life the most is the economy, right? So the economy is, is how we organize ourselves. It's how we get sophisticated, complicated things done. When I say sophisticated and complicated, I mean the fact that lettuce gets picked in California on Saturday and is on my table by, by Sunday, you know, that's sophisticated and complicated. The economy itself needs to grow. It, it, not all economies do, but the one that we've created for ourselves over the past hundred years is defined around growing, right? So, you know, we're, we're familiar with this. This shouldn't be a shock to anybody. You turn on the TV, the president comes on and says, we have to get jobs growth back, economic growth, 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 right? Treasury Secretary says it, all the newspapers say it, and so it needs to grow. And the problem is, is that when we say a growing economy, what we really mean is higher throughput of resources, goods and services, things like that. It's stuff, right? The economy consists of stuff going from point A to point B and being consumed. So when we You're basically saying we can't even handle a 1% decline. We've designed an economy that requires – it doesn't have to be that way, but what we've designed requires continuous growth or we have calamity. Absolutely. 2009, perfect example, world GDP – Gross domestic product shrank by two percent, and it looked like it looked like the wheels came off the cart. It was on fire, heading over a cliff. I mean, it was just it was a disaster, right? Plus two percent growth. I don't think we would have had that same outcome. And, sure. and and so what it really centers on, underneath it all, the underpinning beneath all of that, it's actually the money system itself. And you know, perhaps we don't need to get into that right now, but the primary we, fundamental conclusion. We will. <laughs> it's all right. It's the money. Stupid, right? If I yeah. can use that term, right? It's the money. Sure. So the money needs to, to, it has this enforced growth mechanism. It makes our economy need to grow. And, you know, ultimately the tail is now wagging the dog, if you will, right? We're all just like in service to, to this money system, which, which worked perfectly fine and beautifully as long as all those resources were expanding easily. Um, it, problem, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like a company, right? If a company grew, but grew two percent less than it did the year before. It's not the end of the world. It's it's still solvent. It's still working. But we have an economy where if it has a two percent fall off, you know, the wheels are falling off the off the wagon, so to speak. Absolutely, absolutely. And it all centers on uh, when I say money, I might as well be using the word debt because all of our money is sure. owned into existence. So every time you know a dollar comes into creation, there's a dollar of debt somewhere in the system. So money and debt have both been growing exponentially. By that I mean, um, let's look at debt from 1970 to 1980 to 90, each of those decades up through to current. In each of those decades, um, debt more than doubled. So we've had four decades from 1970. Our debt has doubled five times. Now, has our economy doubled five times? No. So think of you know debt as the thing you owe and the economy, your GDP, is your income. You can't constantly have what you owe be growing faster than your income. I mean, you know that as a private individual. Somehow it eluded us that this also made sense at the national level, right? And, and so that's the primary fundamental problem. If people said, Chris, three words, what's wrong with our economy? I say, too much debt. 
I agree with you, and I, you're you're speaking to a well-informed audience. Let's let's shelve the debt for a second because I want to go deeper into that. But I kind of want to kind of lead this through a progression and and where the problems come from because it's not just about the economy. And and that was a big, huge thing. Like even if we fix the economy, we've got other problems. On, on the show, I talk a lot about disasters and their consequences from small to large. For instance, everything from say a regional wildfire to a global pandemic. But when I listen to you, I realize we have another pending disaster that few people even seem to understand, which is simply how fast the population is growing and the resources it requires to, to, to feed, provide energy to, et cetera, that growing co- uh, population. Can you talk about that a bit, and then we'll get back to the economy? Yeah, well, there's, there's two pieces to that story. One is just physically how many people are you adding to the surface of the planet each year. So on a net basis, that means we have some births, some deaths. What's the net for any given year? It's somewhere between 70 and 80 million new people um, each year going, you know, here, you know, this year and next year and so forth out into the future. 70 million, you know, what is that, five New York cities or something? You know, it's, it's just an enormous quantity. And all of those people obviously, you know, want to eat and consume resources. But the second part of this story is of the people who are already here, right, we've got 7 billion of those, uh, there's a whole portion of the world that's very rapidly bringing up its standards of living. You know, the 1.3 to 1.6 billion people in China, the billion people in India, which is right and good and, and absolutely, I mean, how can you not understand people wanting to improve their living standards? When you try and improve the living standards of several billion people, that has uh, an enormous impact. I mean, we've seen that uh, enormous impact on resources, which we've seen with China's growing its, its use of, of oil at, at high single-digit rates year over year, you know, 8, 9, 10% growth rates. You know, 10% growth rate doesn't sound that, that shocking. It means, though, that, that in 10 years, um, you're going to double, more than double, your use of that resource. That's unbelievable when you really think about it. And I think when we look at growth rates, we also have to look at what the, what the, what's 10% of, right? Because if we have 100,000 of something and we're growing at 10%, it's, it, it can look like moderate growth. But if we have a billion of something that we're growing at 10% use, it, 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 the bigger the underlying number, the, the more the incremental effect is. And kind of moving on to my next question, I know you're probably going to answer this the way I would, which would be all of them. But as we dig deeper and our population heads toward a number like 9 billion, which isn't that far in the future, I just watched a, and I guess the mainstream is starting to pick up on this, a, a discovery a documentary on what the earth looks like with a population between 9 and 10 billion, and it's kind of frightening. But as we move toward that number, what specific resources do you expect to become extremely limited and drastically altered? So it's one thing, it, 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 resources limited, but it also is going to alter the way we have to live. Like, we have to change things, whether we want to or not, just because it ain't there anymore. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, the, the prime message that I'm trying to get out to people is that the future is just going to be different from the past, meaning we're going to have to adjust to this new future. So what's the critical resource, that the number one? Listen, uh, energy is the master resource. And when I say energy, it's a big bucket. Within that, you know, there's different forms of energy. I like the electricity to come out of my wall socket, but I personally can't drive anywhere on my, you know, what comes out of my wall socket. Liquid fuels. Liquid fuels are going to be the key limiting resource as we go forward. Uh, you know, now we've seen peak oil used to be this fringe thing when I was involved in it a few years back. It was, 
it was pretty wackadoodle. And, and today we've got the Department of Defense, Lloyds of London, uh, the German military, all sorts of institutions coming to the same conclusion, which is, whoops, peak oil looks like it's here. And still I feel there's a huge, vast underappreciation for what that really means. This is the most significant event of any generation that's ever been alive. You know, I understand that, that small regions of the world have gotten themselves in resource trouble in the past, um, but here we are as a species, 7 billion strong. We're going to face in this next few years something that has never been faced by us as a species before, which is slightly less energy next year than last year. That's, you know, and that's, just that's huge. That's so huge. And I think, like, I don't think people get it, man. I mean, if you take a bottle cap and fill that up, like a big, like maybe not a bottle cap, but like a, a small cap, like from a mayonnaise jar, and fill that little cap with gasoline, that represents an entire day or more of human labor. It's amazing. And that's and we're, we've been dependent on that, right? I mean, I think a gallon is something insane. It's like a year's worth or something like that was in your course. That it's represented by a gallon of gas. It's about it's somewhere between three hundred and five hundred hours of human labor, depending on how hard you work. For a gallon, yeah. and we're going to take that resource that we be so dependent on, and it's not that it's gone; it's that there's less of it. As we dig deeper into that, what do you say to people that still say things like, "We've got plenty of oil, uh, even with, and we got even more natural gas, we got even more coal." Besides that, they're you know they're they're putting up wind energy, even in West Texas here. I just drove out through West Texas, and there were windmills going up everywhere. I think. Texas is putting out more green energy than California now is what it looks like anyway. And we have all of that stuff coming online every day. We still have these huge coal reserves. We still have these huge natural gas reserves. Canada's got all of these tar sands, and you and you and me, people like us, we're just doomers. And it, society's going to adapt. It always has. And don't worry about it. It'll all be fine. What, what do you say to that person? <laughs> they need to start running some numbers. I, I understand <laughs> the point of view that they're holding, but as soon yeah. as you even bust out a napkin and a crayon, uh, the story falls apart really quickly. So there's two pieces to this story. The first is just the numbers. Like, like if we wanted to replace the amount of oil that the U.S. imports every year, just our imports, right? We get it from Canada, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, a bunch of other countries. So we import about two-thirds of our, of our oil needs on a daily basis. If we wanted to, say, somehow magically build nuclear plants, that would replace all of that energy. Forget even wind, windmills. This number gets even more silly when we talk windmills. Um, we would need to build 700-plus nuclear plants instantly to replace the energy equivalent of what we're importing in terms of that oil. 700, well, there's only 400 in the world, and we still don't even know how we're going to get enough um, uh, uranium to supply the next 40 that are coming online. I don't know, you know where another 700 would come from, but... Then let's talk about how many engineers you need to build 700. Are there that many around? No. Uh, no. Who builds the reactor cores? Oh, there's only two companies. Well, that's okay. We could build new plants that can build reactor cores. The time to scale the cost of transitioning from one energy to another is really underappreciated by people who, who haven't worked in the industry or who haven't worked in a manufacturing environment, I feel. Somehow you, you know, Chris, on, on the nuclear, before you go forward, I just wanted to bring up another number. I think I got it from your course. I don't remember, but the number's always stuck with me. There's only about 3,000 people in the United States that can run and operate uh, a nuclear reactor plant. That, that, that's it. That's all of them. If we put them all in a room together, there's only about 3,000 of them. So even if there's more plants, you got to have somebody with the technical resources to run them. And what you're saying is we can't even build that many because – 
We don't have enough companies that can do it. We don't have enough resources to do it. We don't have enough uranium and, and plutonium to fire the damn things up. And that's the best hope, I guess, right now for new energy is nuclear. Well, it, it's one of the strongest hopes. I mean, if we had these so-called thorium reactors, um, which is another element like uranium, which, which you can burn if you build a reactor in a certain way, uh, and there's a lot of it. So I, I, I'm totally in agreement with people who say, you know what, we could be doing that. I'm like, yeah, we could. But there's a difference between could and are. And the question is, sure. how many thorium reactors today are actually under construction in the U.S.? And the answer is zero. How many are on the drawing boards? I mean, serious, like we've got full schematics and they're thinking about siting and they're going through the permitting process and they're getting the local opposition away and they're doing all of that, which is a decade-long process usually. How many of those do we have? Zero. Right? So I understand, like, even, let's do something where, where we're... <laughs> Say that again real quick. How many we have on the drawing board, seriously? Everybody's talking about it. I've heard thorium, thorium, thorium. But we have how many on the drawing board? Zero that I know Zero. about. Okay, I haven't great. heard well, any, and oh. I've been searching for them, right? <laughs> so, okay, uh, so now let's, let's go to something that's more easy to, to visualize. Natural gas. We've got all the shale gas out there. We just do all these horizontal bottle brush drills. We do some fracking, you know, maybe wreck a few water tables. But, man, look at all this gas. We'll and to be fair, they're pumping it out from underneath my house right now. So there is a lot of it there. I know, I know. And so, uh, so, so let, let's, let's just turn to that. The, the basic issue is that even if I bought a propane or a natural gas-fired car today, there are no filling stations even within full day's driving distance of my house right now. There are none. We don't have them here. Okay, that's fine. So we'll have to build filling stations. Well, how does the gas get to the filling stations? Well, we could bring it in big trucks, but that's not really good because it has to be super pressurized. It would be better if we had pipelines because that's how natural gas is most efficiently delivered. Ooh, sure. We're going to have to build a whole, you know, all of a sudden we're going to have this massive pipeline build-up. Can we do it? Yes. Are we doing it? No. And that's the gap between, you know, some people, I think, have this fantasy that when it's really serious, we'll get serious, you know, and we'll just start, you know, building out a, a natural gas uh, pipeline infrastructure and, and distribution process that'll sort of cover the gap. But those people need to understand that if peak oil is really only a, a year or two away from widespread international recognition, that we only have a year or two to start building that system out. Uh, you know, because we're going to use oil to build the system. You've got to use oil to build the system. I mean, it is not at all unthinkable, you know, when we say, oh, you know, $147 a barrel for oil, that was too much. Like, well, but not if that barrel of oil has, you know, the equivalent of, of an entire year's worth of human labor embedded in it. I mean, now what's it worth? How much yeah, would you exactly. to work for a year? A lot. Exactly. <laughs> and then the other thing is, I always was laughing when I would be in Starbucks and watch a person paying $4.75 for 16 ounces of a coffee with some milk and syrup in it, and that person was complaining about, you know, 3 or $4 for a gallon of gasoline that, like you said, contains 400 hours of human labor. Yeah. I mean, at a dollar an hour, the, you know, poverty-stricken nation, then gasoline equivalently would be worth $400 a gallon. Fifty cents an hour, it's worth 200 A quarter, I mean, there's a point at which... If you're limited in something, you have to start paying what it's actually worth, and, and that's a big part of this problem. So I guess the construction costs go up, and, I mean, what are your thoughts on things like, oh, we're going to go do all this, but then the same environmentalists that 
want the new sources of energy, don't want us to dig holes, disturb the, the habitat of the striped-tailed foofy flu or whatever, uh, put a ditch across the street because it might disrupt the world or whatever. So there's, it's not like when Eisenhower decided we're going to build the highway system in the 50s and in 10 years there was a highway system. There's stuff in the way now, right? It, it's complicated that way, um, and, and it's also complicated um, by this other prospect, which is called um, the law of receding horizons. And this is most easily told around the story of uh, shale oil. Uh, shale oil is the wrong term. I hate it because it's not oil in the shale. It's the stuff called kerogen. It doesn't flow. You know, it's, it's not. It's a waxy substance. But at any rate, you know, when, when uh, way back when, once upon a time, oil is $10 a barrel, and Shell looks at the Rocky Mountain Range and says, God, there's like three Saudi Arabias locked under this mountain range. You know, we have to dig the whole thing up and, and you know, burn it. But, um, you know, leaving that impact aside, we say there's three Saudi Arabias, but oil has to be $20 a barrel before this makes sense, you know. And then oil gets to $20 a barrel, and Shell looks at it and says, you know, it's still a perfect story, but uh, oil needs to be 30 under today's pricing. <laughs> and then we get to 30 and they say 40 and it gets to 40 and all the way up. The horizon was always $10 away because the sure. problem is in order to get that stuff out, you need to use all this energy to get it out or the energy that's embodied in the prices that people had to pay for their food or cars or labor costs. It's all baked into this big story. And so, and so we're going to find as a nation that when we say time to get serious, we're going to build a smart grid. We're going to, you know, completely, uh, you know, go after all these remaining energy sources. We're going to, you know, we're going to turn Montana upside down for its coal. Uh, whatever these things are, we think we're going to do. We're going to find they're actually hard to do. We can't probably afford them all, you know, because yeah. this yeah. law of receding horizons. By the time the market delivers a price signal to us that says you got to get serious about energy. Make a number up here. Oil three hundred a barrel, and we're like, "That's it. We're getting serious." We're going to find, lo and behold, when we get there, how difficult it is to find the money, the resources, the things. I've never really heard of that before. That's a, that's a that's an um, amazing concept, and it's so simple by nature that I'm saying I want the resource to be worth X before I can extract it and get a profit. But if I use the same resource to do the extraction, as the cost rises, my cost of extraction rises concurrently with the price of the resource. Yep. So it, it always looks the same. No matter how high it goes, my cost of extraction is just chasing it like a little dog yeah. behind its master. Yep. So, so we, beat up on, we beat up on energy pretty good. I want to keep moving along right. here because if, if, um, I think people get it. I, I really do, and I think you've made it more clear than I've ever actually been able to look at it before. But I want to talk about the go back to the economy now because that's that's one of your real hotbeds. Yeah. Just a kind of an opening opening segue into there. We had you know the credit bust and the housing bust, which weren't really the same thing, even though everybody thinks they were. Before that, there was a technology bust, the telecom bust, the dot com bust, the Enron thing with people cooking books, and everything's blown up. And basically, some of the people that say, "Hey, everything's going to be super now," are saying, "Well, all the things that could explode exploded. There's no more busts." So we can kind of rebuild now. What do you think's next? But what's the next big problem for the U.S. economy? You know, um, you mentioned uh, something that really didn't. I just finished writing a book and, and um, uh, on the crash course, and I got stuck on a chapter I thought was going to be easy. Um, and this was a chapter on uh, bubbles because I'd already had a crash course chapter on bubbles. So I thought I was just going to sit down. But there was always a major gaping hole in the center of that story for me, which was how did we go from a, a tech a stock bubble? To a housing bubble in only seven years, given the fact that there are no other historical examples of bubbles, 
occurring closer than a generation apart, right? It takes time to forget the pain of the last bubble, you know? How did we manage to do that? And uh, what occurred to me, sort of one of the insights that, 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 that came from writing the book, so that made it a useful exercise for me, was realizing that um, we are still under um, the major bubble, that the tech bubble and the housing bubble were themselves echo bubbles, slight, smaller, they were sub-bubbles of this larger one. The larger one I hinted at at the beginning where I said credit has doubled five times in four decades. We, you and I, have grown up during a period of time uh, of the most explosive growth, unsustain, you know, uh, un, un, uh, wavering growth and unsustainable growth in, in credit. The credit bubble hasn't burst yet. And so I just came back from Iceland about a week ago, and there's a nation which went through a credit bubble and it already burst, and I'm a little bit jealous of them because they're actually dealing with reality over there. They're saying, oh, my gosh, <laughs> it's a nation. They're like, yep, we went too far. We're going to have to go back some. What does it mean? They're, they're, they're starting to, to, to wrestle with reality. And we haven't done that yet in this country. Uh, the United States, I think, is still attempting to deny what's, I think, becoming increasingly obvious across the rest of the developed world, which is that we went through a massive, unsustainable credit bubble, and there was a lot of false growth that was attached with that. There was a lot of forward production and, and consumption that was pulled back and already consumed. It's gone. I mean, it's gone. It can't get it back. So, so now there's a gap between what the future can really deliver and what we expect from the world in terms of, you know, by, by piling on all this credit. So the tech bubble and the housing bubble then, those weren't the main bubbles. I think that main story is still lurking out there. And you only need a few features to, to have a bubble, but one of them is that most people can't see it. That, that's okay. an absolute requirement. And Absolutely. You, and you need a good story, and you need, um, uh, you need a lot of credit. Right? Those are the three elements you kind of need to have a bubble. And, uh, and all of those are still existing around uh, U.S. Treasury debt, as far as I can tell. So you're with Peter Schiff that the, the you know we're going to have basically a treasury bust because it's been on a 20 year bull run and that 20 year bull run is what drove all the rest of this stuff. Um, I think for people to understand that though, one of the terms that I heard you use in uh, the crash course was, and I, I already knew this but I never quite phrased it this simply, is that all money in our economy is loaned into existence. Can you explain that for our audience? Most, most importantly, why is that a problem? Why is that a, a, a problem in the first place? And how does that create a bigger problem we've already talked about of required growth? Well, you know, it's actually not that difficult of a concept to explain, but, but it's so bizarre that it's very hard for people to, to hear for some reason and really get because it just doesn't make sense. But, but this is what you've said is absolutely true. All money is loaned into existence. That's the system we have. We have what's called a debt-backed or debt-based fiat money system. Fiat meaning let it be done, or it's, it means you know there's a legal requirement to use this stuff. Um, so what is it? What are the implications of loaning all your money into existence? Well, what it means is that if if a loan is made for for you know, and it creates money. So I go to the bank, I take $10,000 out. I have $10,000 in money. It's, it's real money. I could hand it to you and you'd be like, man, that is money, right? But I have that money and I have the debt that goes with it and I have this rate of interest I have to pay on it. And it's that rate of interest that ultimately 
ends up creating a condition where each and every year we find that the amount of debt and the amount of money in our society has been growing, not just a little bit, but it's been growing exponentially. It's, it's a perfect fit. You know, if I, if I look at the data, it's perfect. As a scientist, I look at it and I go, wow, that's an exponential money system. That's awesome, right? And that's, that's really, uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Let me not put any pros and cons, no judgments. But there's a system issue in there that we need to understand. And this is the critical, this is the core. This is the core of everything that I talk about. That, that This is my message. If you have an, a money system that is designed to grow exponentially, and you can look forward and see that one of the key inputs that it requires in order to continue growing exponentially is going to be in short, limited, or limiting supply, you have got to do everything in your power to understand what might happen when those two pieces come together. An economic money system that must grow by design and an energy or a resource system that can't grow any longer in the way to which we expect it and require it. That's the collision I see coming. Primarily. Even if it grows, even if it grows, if the growth is not concurrent, if it can't grow fast enough to meet the growth requirement of the, the, the money, then we get the same effect as if it didn't grow at all, basically. Yeah, and, and the problem is, you know, there's some very easy predictions that come out of this, even though I'm predicting when and precisely where things are going to happen. That's impossible because all complex systems are inherently unpredictable in their details. But you can stand back and understand them in a larger sense relatively easily. So in the largest sense, our prediction would be that when the credit system no longer can expand in the way to which it's become accustomed, you will start to see all sorts of defaults begin to ripple through the system. And, yes, we saw that, you know, the default started in the housing sector, and then we're starting to see sovereign defaults. And guess what? Next up we're going to start hearing about corporate defaults, um, all of these defaults are coming through, and it individually, if you scratch them and go, why are corporations defaulting? It's a very complicated story. Um, but if you stand back and you just say, wow, credit was growing exponentially, it stopped growing exponentially, look at all these defaults showing up. It makes perfect sense, right? It's just when you get too close to it, you put your nose up against the painting, it's really hard to figure out what it is. Um, so that's why I constantly am backing up and looking at the big pieces because those are predictable. We can very easily predict that if we have a money system or a debt system that has to grow and there's a real hard physical reality constraint that the world or call it nature is going to impose, I know which of those two systems wins that fight. I don't have to think too hard about that, right? Sure. Um, so then our next question is to ask, well, what what do we think might happen if, when, that credit system really starts to fall apart, meaning that here, here's the thing I'm most worried about in the economic system. So there are all these money is really heavily concentrated right now. Um, private equity funds hold vast quantities of this stuff, giant pension funds, um, uh, in, even private individuals, you know, in the top 100 list. There are, there are relatively small players who control, small, I mean, in numbers, who control vast uh, amounts of this wealth. Well, in order for a bond fund or a stock fund, I mean like an index fund, some aggregation, the S&P 500, or a big bond fund, you know, a, a long-duration bond fund, something with all kinds of things in it, for each of those, to, a lot of the value that we would ascribe to those, the S&P is worth X, you know, that bond fund is worth Y, a lot of that value is dependent on an implicit and even an explicit 
um, uh, growth that is baked into that formula. Okay? Sure. So if you all of a sudden have a bunch of people come to the same conclusions that I've come to or that you're coming to is, is that where they put a zero in the growth part of that column and say, I don't see how this grows anymore, whoops, and they zero that portion out, we're going to find that those paper forms of wealth, what I call tertiary forms of wealth, that, that, that third-order wealth, that the paper stuff, we'll find that those suddenly get just hacked and sliced to some very different value. We have to be mentally prepared for that. When so we start basically having the general population lose confidence in the currency, and the only thing the currency really derives its strength from is the confidence that the general public has in it in the first place. As soon as the confidence is lost, its value begins to fall. Or am I simplifying that too far? Well, I mean, so, so it's a little bit simplified. There's two different forms of value we have to assign to it. One is the external value, like somebody from China or, or from Europe who, you know, what, how much do they value our currency? That's very important. Inside a country, um, our currency actually develops and gets its number one source of value, if you can look at it this way, from the fact that it's the only thing that you can pay your taxes in. Hmm. Ultimately, that's what gives hmm. our money value inside our country. Right. Hmm. If you didn't, if there was not a requirement <laughs> for you to pay your taxes in the, in this currency, and you could have you could use different currencies, you trust me, you'd start. Uh, you know. Wow, that's a whole new way to view economic enslavement. I, I, uh, wow, that's 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 that, and I'm not like buttering your bread here or anything. That's extremely profound. That. That is what keeps us glued and married to our currency. That's a big part of what suppresses barter systems and, and private currencies is the fact that in the end I got to pay the tax man in U.S. dollars, and I don't just have to pay my property or my uh, my income taxes in U.S. dollars. I have to pay my property taxes. I have to pay my Social Security taxes. I have to pay every tax they come up with. I can't go down to my property tax office and say, "Okay, you said I owe eighteen hundred bucks. Here's X number ounces of silver." They'll send me on my way. I've got to convert to U.S. currency to pay those bills. That's that. Uh, that's that's the whole story. Wow. Hey, you used a term there that I thought was cool, the third order wealth, basically. And I picked this up on one of your presentations. I think it was the one in Denver. Can you before we? I want to switch the solutions here and, and what people can do for themselves as we go to the second half of the show. But before we do that, because I think it's another huge thing people need to get. You have three forms of wealth you talk about, primary, secondary, and third order. Before we go to solutions, can you kind of explain those? Yeah, this is a really important concept, and, and frankly, I think it's, it's something that wouldn't have um, uh, surprised our grandfathers or great-grandfathers you know, and, and mothers. And, uh, it, it's a very simple concept. Primary wealth is what's already sitting there in concentrated form in, in the earth, in the world, right? So if you show up and... and you know, two property owners next to each other, but one's got this really thick seam of beautiful black anthracite coal that's right on the surface, and the other one's got like a nothing, sand lot, right? We can understand right away that those that the primary wealth of those two lots are fundamentally different from each other. So primary wealth, that's thick soils that, are, that haven't been depleted. It's rich fishing grounds. It's, it's concentrated ore bodies of all kinds. It's energy that's underneath it. That's primary wealth. Secondary wealth means that somebody has come along, some human has come along and extracted that coal and brought it to market or fished the waters and brought the fish to market or smelted the ore and refined it into metal. Those are forms of secondary wealth. Without the primary wealth, though, you can't have the secondary wealth. 
if you don't, if there's no fish in the ocean, you're not going to sell any fish. If there's no concentrated ore, you're not doing any smelting. So I think we can understand, okay, all right, so primary wealth comes first, and then secondary wealth. Third-order wealth is what we layer on top of those other two forms. These are all the stocks, all the bonds, even our paper money, derivatives, all these fancy things. And in my lifetime, I've seen people um, lose the connection and start to feel like third-order wealth, that's real. That's the tangible stuff. And forget the connection for the other two forms. If you don't have primary, you can't have secondary. And if you don't have secondary, you can't have that third-order wealth. It falls you know, and is there a mathematical issue there, a simple multiplication problem, I guess, that it, it makes perfect sense to me that if you tell me my land has X dollar value of wealth, and whatever economy we're running in, whether fiat or commodity back, I don't care, if my land is worth X dollars because it's rich, fertile soil, that if I take and add labor input and management and produce corn, that I can, over time, my secondary wealth production can outproduce my first-order wealth. Because if I can keep producing over and over in a sustainable way, the corn's worth more because you can eat it than the dirt itself. Yep. But then we go into this third-order wealth where people start putting these multiplication factors in place with things like derivatives, but we're not actually basing it really on the underlying value. We start adding a derivative of a derivative. We take a paper asset and multiply a paper asset without increasing the resource, right? Yeah, and 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 here's here's where the the whole story really starts to um, become interesting, and we can look at all sorts of different forms of primary wealth, and we can see and describe them with a single word, and that's depleting. You know, they're not. I'm not saying gone. I'm saying depleting. There's different. Depleting means we went from giant copper nuggets we found in stream beds to, you know, 20% ore grades, beautiful blue-green malachite stuff, and then we went to 10%, and then 5%, 2, 1. You know, we're going, we find ourselves in almost any ore category we want to look at if we're talking minerals, that we're depleting um, them fairly rapidly. I'm not saying, you know, we've got another 1,000 years to sort of work this through. In 150 years of industrialized economy, which, by the way, is the one we all know and love, um, we've managed to pretty substantially deplete a lot of things. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's manageable in, in some respects. Maybe we could substitute. Maybe we don't need as much. But the point is that if the economy we built, knew, and loved and are expecting, requiring, hoping, dreaming for, if that was predicated on getting more and more and more resources out of the ground, there is a pretty big management shift we're going to have to undertake if when we get to that point where we have to get slightly less and less and less out of the ground. Um, it's just a different world. And, you know, part of my uh, message is I don't actually know how that's going to turn out. I just know that there's an enormous risk if, if all of your um, leadership and management is expecting one thing and then doesn't see that, whoops, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's not going to work out that way, right? So there's and, no plan and, B. Yeah, there's no plan B. And um, the other side of what I hear you say is basically – we need more, not just maintenance. So it's one thing to say, well, there's plenty of oil. We can keep production where it is. And even if that's true, if the draw goes up without the, the resource underlying it, we've got real problems. And the, the discussion up till now, we've talked a lot about the problem. And when I first found you, that was pretty much your message was, hey, here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem, to get people to wake up. 
but you've moved a lot more now toward also, well, what the hell do I do about this, the average person, the average listener to my show that tunes in specifically because they see these types of problems. They probably disturbingly see it a little more clearly than they did yesterday now. Um, so everybody, you can thank Chris for your uh, restless night's sleep coming up tonight. Um, but let's move on to some of the things people can do. And I started looking at, you know, you have a whole section of what to, what can I do advice, which I think is great on your site. I'll put links to it in today's show notes. But the first term that I see you use is become resilient. And this is when you're talking about it's going to change and we don't know what it's going to do. Can you talk about what you mean when you tell somebody become more resilient? Yeah, you know, originally, um, Jack, when I first started down this path, I'll be honest with you, um, my wife and I were a little bit motivated by um, anxiety, if not fear. I mean, we were looking at some critical things saying, oh, my God, this, this looks like a house of cards. And, 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 again, the critical bit about a house of cards, like we've got one complicated is this, is you don't know. You don't know is it going to all fly apart next Tuesday suddenly and cataclysmically, or is it going to slowly sort of unravel over the next 200 years? I don't know. Right, um, but the risks were high enough that we realized, gosh, we have to do something. So the first thing we did is, we, you know, we took care of uh, what I would call some pretty basic stuff, you know, uh, food, shelter, water, things like that. But over time, it occurred to us that what we were really trying to do was become resilient. So here's an example of resilience. Uh, when we bought this house that we're in right now in Massachusetts, uh, it had one way to heat itself. Uh, it had, a, it, and it still does. It has an oil furnace, right? So we are 100% exposed to the oil trucks showing up and putting stuff into into our uh, uh, tank in the basement. Well, just by adding a wood stove, well, we're a little bit more resilient because you know we've got trees on the property, so we're at least partially in control of our heating. And we said, well, that's good, but what else could we do? So we put solar hot water panels up on the roof, and that cut our oil dependency in half right there because uh, that's how our hot water gets heated. So boom. Half. My oil furnace hasn't actually turned on since uh, May, and here it is September. So, um, you know, we haven't burned any, not a drop uh, since then. And then, you know, we insulated the house. So, you know, here are some steps that we're taking, which do a number of things. The first is that they provide resiliency for us. We now have multiple ways of heating our house and of obtaining warmth, uh, you know, that uh, from, from solar, wood, Oil. We've got a we've got variety of different strands, webs that that we can use. So if any one of those gets cut, you know, a town passes an ordinance says you can't use wood stoves anymore. Or something dumb like that. Well, we've still got two <laughs> other ways to go here, um, and that's increasing resilience. But it's not just increasing, you know, sort of the resilience that we experience uh, right now. Which, by the way, it's been it's done wonders for our cash flow in terms of uh, you know controlling our energy costs. Um, but it gives us resilience for however the future turns out. Like, you know, if, if it turns out that uh, we're completely off our rockers and there's no, no such thing as an energy crisis, you know, it was just all made-up data, uh, something, you know, got the story wrong, we're still going to find that we're going to basically recoup all of our investments in our energy infrastructure, things that we've done, uh, within about eight or nine years at current prices. So I can't find another investment out there for the life of me that's paying um, basically 11% returns. So, A, it's a great investment. But, B, if the future turns out like I think it's going to, and oil suddenly shoots back up to 4 5 $6 a gallon, now I've become a, a certified genius, right? Because Absolutely. Because when that day happens, the number of people who are going to be competing to try and put do the same things we did to insulate and put solar panels on the roof, 
they will find themselves at the back end of a one, two, three-year waiting list because you know what? There's not enough installers, and if there were, there's not enough panels out there. I mean, it's just the, the, the solar industry is wafer thin in terms of its capacity, both on the manufacturing installation side. So it, they're just not – they're – they can't spool up very rapidly. So, and I think that people have like become to expect those systems to come down in cost. And to be fair, over 20 years they have. But when you create a shortage of anything, basic economics 101 you learn in 10th grade high school, a shortage of supply and an increase of demand at the same time results in an increase in cost. So it's not just the weight, you're going to pay more. That works. Um, and, and so I truly believe that this period of time we're in right now is a gift. It's a gift because you can you can still order anything you want, and the big brown truck of happiness will roll up your driveway with it about a week later. Um, you can you can go out and, and get uh, people to come in and gladly install things for you right now. I mean, everything is every we're yeah. we're, in a, we're in a really nice period right now. And one of the things that we learned from the financial crises, so Greece, um, Iceland, uh, soon watch uh, it's going to happen in Ireland, uh, but. What we've learned is that these things happen really a lot faster than they used to, right? Welcome to the computer sure. age, right? Um, my position is that uh, since we don't know when and we don't know how deep the, the next sort of adjustment process will be, or even if, uh, people should take any of these sort of quiet periods and not look at them as, as potential, um, you know, oh, this is a, a sign that recovery is on the way and everything's going to be just fine. So I'm just going to wait for that next signal before I get serious about this. I think the, the, the people who are really um, seizing the moment look at these qu- relatively quiet periods and say, this is my opportunity. Right? Exactly. This is my exactly. opportunity to do what I need to do. While things are, it's so easy to prepare right now, and it's so cheap relative to what's yeah. going to happen. You know, even think about $4 a gallon we went to. You could not find a diesel car on the East Coast that was, you know, less than uh, twice what it used to be before <laughs> gas prices went up. It's just like you said, supply and demand, and and um, price sometimes isn't even the object. Sometimes it's actual scarcity that happens. Um, yeah, you know, I bought one of the last, now they're making them again now, but they went out of production, diesel Jettas, ever made, and every vehicle I ever purchased new, and I usually pay cash, I, I walk in and I, you know, metaphorically roll out the billfold and say, I want this vehicle, I'm going to pay cash, no trouble, no hassle, no nothing, I want your best deal, and they fold, and they start, you know, we'll do this, and we'll throw a free war, we'll do something, you know, immediately without even batting an eyelash. What they told me is, they said, that's the sticker price, I don't care where your financing comes from, your back pocket or your bank, that's the sticker price, I have eight of them on the lot, two of them are already slated to be sold, and we ain't getting any more. And, and it was the only time I ever bought a new vehicle and paid sticker price on it. Yep. And, and I think you're absolutely right. The other thing I hear you saying in all of this, it, I, it amazes me how everybody that takes a logical instead of a frantic look at this comes to the same conclusion. Everything you do to prepare for this makes your life better even if it doesn't go down the hole. And, and that's kind of the entire philosophy that I've done the show with. And it's really refreshing to see you come to that same exact conclusion going through a different pathway. And I think it's because you didn't look at this and start saying, the sky's falling, run and hide. You said, change is coming, what can we do about it? And when you start adapting in advance of change, you start solidifying things so that you're better off today. Absolutely. You know, the the number one word that comes from these actions that my wife and I have taken is relief. You know, so so about, you know, I was a very active trader. 
um, I was really unhappy 2001 and two, and my broker kept giving me stories. You know, I wasn't really paying attention at that point. I, I loved how my stuff grew in the 90s and was slow to adjust and wake up. Um, and, and my broker kept saying, oh, for the long haul, for the long haul, you know, and I just started scratching at that a little bit and discovered he was full of it. There were whole periods of history where the long haul was like 20 years between, you know, uh, stocks yeah. covering their losses. I, I was not in a position to wait 20 years. So, so I, I, very uncomfortable process, seized everything, looked at everything, took a capital gains hit, sold stocks, you know, bought gold and silver, and um, I've slept like a baby ever since, right? Absolutely. And, and so... It was yes, it was an uncomfortable period of taking those first steps for me, no question about it. Um, yes, it took a lot of time. No, it wasn't something I'd planned to be doing at that moment in time. You know, uh, I was kind of hoping somebody else would manage that complicated stuff for me. But after I did it, I slept better. And after we took my wife and I, every step we've taken, like so, we planted a fruit orchard in our yard. You know, and that's a that's a twenty year investment. You know, to get those things up and running. But after I did it, I just felt better. It was it was uh, sure. like some weight had been lifted off. Um, and so this has been the surprising part for my wife and I is discovering that with all of these things we've been doing, it actually feels like our quality of life is improving. The relief is there. I'm not nearly as frantic as some people I know who are really stressing at this particular moment in time, but they're stressing because every, they've hitched their entire wagon up to the past returning. You know, you know. I've said that. I've said that basically 99% of our people, from government down to private individual in this country, have 100% of their life betting on inflation. Yep. Without inflation and growth, they fail. They have no redundancy. You call it resiliency, I call it redundancy, but they have none. I, I want to keep going, though, because we, we're going long, but we're, we're cool with long. I just want to keep moving on this. One of the other things I picked up from you, there's such a commonality in the message we preach here and what you're talking about over there is importance of community. I attract all types of people to the show. With a name like the Survival Podcast, I attract equally well the little lady that wants to put a, a nice garden in and feed her family in Dallas, as well as the, the mountain man in the middle of Idaho. But some of those rugged outdoor types have this isolationist when they, we call, you know, we say when the shit hits the fan, they're going to run off and be isolationist and avoid everybody. And I'm not even saying that there might not be a particular instance in time where isolation might be necessary, like a pandemic or something. But leaving that aside, I have preached community from day one. We cannot do this alone. We're, we are a community animal. That's how we work. We function as community, and we need that. What do you say to the person that says, I can just do everything on my own, I'll be okay, I can be self-sufficient? Well, you know, if, if that works for that person, I, I think that's, that's the right answer for them. It's absolutely the wrong answer for me. Um, not only do I have a wife, I've got three children. Um, I'm pretty much of a, of a social creature. And, uh, but I came to the conclusion a long time ago that even if I could do everything myself, I don't think I want to. Um, first of all, it's a lot of stuff to do. But second of all, I have a I have a value a two values I've gotten as I look into the future. I see a lot of possibly challenging times. Yes, there could be disruptions that could happen. Uh, I don't know, but but I know two things. One, I'm going to make it. Like I'm going to be standing on the other side of this thing. I don't care what happens. You know, it could be an easy slog. It could be the worst belly crawl through a muddy ditch. I'm making it. Okay, I know that. But the second thing is, I want to make it with style. I don't see any reason to be unhappy through that whole process. I, I've seen people in who had much, much, much lower levels of standards of living in the United States, who are perfectly happy. So I figure, well, why can't that be me? I don't want to get dragged into a, a, a vortex of, uh, of anguish or pain. I, I think that 
I want to be hanging around with a bunch of people that, you know what, uh, our electricity's out, that's a disaster, you know, I, we, we can't turn on our TVs. I want to be with the people who say, fine, we're, we're just going to drag out our instruments then and we'll have a dance just like they used to. I mean, you can still, it, it's, it's not so much um, what you do, I guess is what I'm saying, it's how you do it. And my wife and I have made the decision that uh, we want to come through this with as much joy, optimism, personal growth, um, as we possibly can, because you know it, it's it's uh, the, the journey's you know it, let's not waste it. Uh, there's something. To yeah, be I mean, I describe preppers, you know, as we gener- generically call ourselves. I think that's a better word than survivalist. A survivalist brings up the whole you know running around in camouflage, hiding in the woods, media spin, which is not accurate, but it's what it brings up. We are optim, but as a group, we're optimistic pessimists. We're pessimists enough to say the system could fail. But if we were just total pessimists, we'd be like everybody else and say the hell with it. Let's live the good life while we can. We plan for the future. That is an optimistic viewpoint. Um, another thing you're big on, you know, moving forward with your solutions is storing some water. And I've you know read your your blog entries on that and putting some water away. But you also talk about the need for like water filtration systems because water's heavy, bulky. Uh, you can only store so much of it, and there's a lot of it out there, even with a resource shortage that we can get our hands on. But being able to make it safe for our consumption, bathing, and hygiene. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, water is is the first thing that we focus on ever. I mean, if there's if somebody said I can only do one thing this year and and I, I only have enough energy and money to, to do one thing, I'm going to say, great, get a water filter. Because the amount of resilience you get with having a water filter is just staggering. I mean, you could use pond water, puddle water, rain water, you know, any, any sorts of water you can put through these new filters, uh, and it comes out perfectly clean and, and stripped of, of uh, you know, any bacterial sources of infection or any of the, the sporidia things, right? So, so to me, that's just a no-brainer. Um, when we look at, though, you know, uh, say a big disaster happens, like the, like the quake in Haiti or, or something, or we look at like what happened to Napoleon's troops. Um, uh, a surprising number of, of waterborne diseases are actually the major uh, things that you have to worry about uh, in a time of crisis. And so I, I just figure, you know, if, if it's really a time of crisis, the last thing I want to be worrying about is my water safe. If I can fix that now by spending a couple hundred bucks on something that, that, that can filter pretty much anything. I mean, to me, this is just an absolute no-brainer. If I lived in California, where I know that earthquakes are a given, right? I don't know when and I don't know how big, but I know that yes is, is the answer to are they going to happen. Um, I, uh, I can't understand how, you know, the, I read the numbers. 1% of the people in California have made some level of preparation. I think it's some number like that. It might be 3%. It's really low. Have made some it's level of preparation for the possibility of an earthquake, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. I, it's surprising. <laughs> Um, but if, if I if I live there in any sort of a, a natural uh, disaster prone area, th- absolutely I would I would, first thing I would have is uh, capability of uh, processing my own water. And it happens without a resource depletion or any kind of major problem. We had several communities this uh, past August when temperatures got high, where people were on boil water notices or they were on no water for periods of time, just because the ground got hot, it shifted. And mains that have been in the ground, and I don't think people get this, some of those water mains bringing you water, they've been in the ground for 50, 60, uh, some 100 years. Well, and yep. We had one in Boston it, that broke recently. You know, lots so, of people lost, lost water. It was a 100-year-old main. And uh, wow. it was amazing. You might, you might have even seen this. There were YouTube videos of showing people literally fighting each other for bottled water. 
in the store. Because you need it. If you don't have water, you die. It's it, and I know that's true about food. And let's ask about food here in just a second. But we could go. You could go a week without food. You're gonna be really hungry and really miserable. But unless you have some other underlying health condition, you're gonna be alive. You put a person a week without water, they are DOA in the ground dead. Mm-hmm. And to not make allowances for that to me is insanity. It would be like not you know deciding. Well, I won't be able to breathe tomorrow, but I'm not gonna get an oxygen tank. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Moving on to food, though, this is what I tell people. Ramping up to 30 days of, of food redundancy in your home, I see as an absolute 100% minimum. Anything else to me would be like you go to the, the, the gas station, you put two gallons of gas in your car because that's how much you need today. Um, i bigger on six months, and I think six months gets you through 90% of what can go wrong. I'm more comfortable with a year. What say you on food storage? Uh, I, you know, I take this in um, in two steps. The first is, I think, you know, just having what I, what we call a deep pantry, right? So you go to the store, the same things you're buying when you're there, you just buy extra, and you just start putting them into rotation in your deep pantry, right? And that can get sure. you... Sure, eat what you store, eat what you store, store what you eat. That's, yep. that's primary principle, okay? Yeah, very easy, very easy. And, and, and oh, by the way, if food prices are rising, it turns out that that's a, a very good economic strategy as well, because... You're always eating food that's cheaper than, than it currently is, right? It makes right. perfect sense, right? So, so the way I think about food is, you know, 80 years ago, maybe 100 years ago, in almost every town in America, there was a person, a government person, whose job it was to go out and count all the stores of, of food that were in all the silos, all the farms, all the, all the places around, and then match that against the population and give a report back and say, looks like we're good for the winter, right? Um, sure. That... that We've only very recently sort of come to the conclusion that food just is, you know, perfectly available at all moments in stores. Um, and so my position on, on food is, is uh, to have, first of all, a deep pantry. And then second of all, at, you know, your own personal level of comfort, are you going to store another month, another three months, six months, whatever that number happens to be for you in what I call uh, set it and forget it food. Whether that's freeze dried or you use those uh, super packed mylar bags, you know, with, with grains in them, whatever those things are, it's so cheap compared to uh, the alternative. I mean, if you, you know, I know people who buy um, catastrophic insurance on their businesses, on their homes, on all kinds of things, who um, who uh, would balk at spending a lesser amount of money on something that that could provide an even greater amount of insurance. Uh, you know, if you buy long-term storage food, it's, it lasts for 30 years. Uh, Absolutely. And plenty of people have lost businesses and not died, but no human being has gone for too long without food, without diet. I mean, it's it's a critical need. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm – so I, I've, I've, I've personally stored some food. It, it gives me that relief again. I did it once uh, a couple years back. I haven't thought about it since. And um, when you ask how much I store, I actually balk at, at saying a little bit because I've actually stored more than, than we need under the principle that I want to be able to, to share an offer um, if, if the time, you know, ever called for it. Because my, my position is that my act of preparing is actually one of the least selfish things I can do. Because by being personally prepared, it means that in a time of crisis, I'm not one of the people out looking for help. I'm one of the people exactly. out looking for help. I'm on the helper side of the column. And You're also not hoarding. I mean, people think of that as hoarding, but hoarding is when the crisis hits and you go take as much as you can and there's less for everybody else. 
you're doing the old hand grasshopper thing, right? Time of abundance, store it up. Um, and I mean, another thing you talk about though that we have in common is you talk about growing that food, right? So, oh, absolutely, yeah. Why, why is that important? Do people grow their own food as well? I, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. Um, the first reason, obviously, is if if you can grow your own food to any extent, even if it's just a couple of percent. Um, you're learning how to do that, and it provides a little bit of that extra resiliency for yourself. I truly believe that if we got to a crisis situation, the kinds of foods you can grow for yourself are going to be the ones that are most difficult to come by. Fresh, healthy, wholesome, greens, vegetables, other things like that. Uh, the second reason I think it's really important is because we need to start reconnecting with the land, with, with that, that primary wealth, with understanding how things come into being and come into our lives. I just think it's critical that we start um, reconnecting in that way. And and for the most part, for most people, if you take a chunk of lawn that you had to use a gas mower to, to process and, and, you know, maintain, and you can turn that into uh, garden space, that to me feels like the biggest win-win there, you, there is. I, I just can't imagine um, personally in my life not having a garden and not putting some effort into that at this point. And maybe there's a third reason. I love. I, I I now love it. I like. I like watching stuff grow. I I like. I, I like. It's sort of my meditation moment out there, watering and doing stuff. Um, so it fits me. And maybe it doesn't fit everybody. I totally get that. But um, it is an important source of our family's personal resilience. Even though there's no way we could feed ourselves out of our garden. Sure. That's not the point of it. You know, I think you hit on something there toward the end that uh, I've said before is that if every American would plant just a small garden, I don't care if it's a four-foot by eight-foot one-race bed, and just grow a little bit of food and do the work and experience it and reconnect, that we would put probably 50% or more of the psychologists and psychiatrists and uh, psychotropic drug manufacturers out of business because a lot of the things that you think are so stressful and so much a problem seem to melt away if you just be what you are, which is a human being. And we evolved over tens of thousands of years of having some level of a rich connection to our planet, and we've lost that. In fact, you're so similar. If Chris, if I ever go on vacation, I'm going to phone you up and see if you want to guest host for me while I'm gone, man, if you're up for it. I mean, uh, we sound like very, very similar-minded people. Uh, what, what are your thoughts, though? I want to it, it kind of give you a chance to wrap things up here and tell people what they can do for themselves on – and I've had some other financial people on that have talked about, you know, investing and all. And they've talked about it more of an institutional level. What is the person sitting on fifty grand to five hundred grand in, in, in assets right now, four hundred one ks or out of four hundred one ks, just money that says I want to protect my wealth. I'm not concerned how much I'm going to make. I just don't want to lose. What do they do going forward right now? Well, so the problem right now is, is that, you know, it's a really treacherous sort of investing environment. If we're thinking about just playing out in that world of that third-order wealth, you know, so I've got, I've got this third-order cash sitting here. Do I buy those third-order bonds or these stocks or those companies or do I put it in another country? You know, the, these are all um, very difficult questions to answer because right now we are skating a knife edge between outright deflation and outright inflation. It's a really tricky balancing act, and, and you know I'm glad. I'm, <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because I, I, I say that every every time somebody says the the, the magic bullet is put 100 percent of your money in precious metals. I'm like, but there's another side to that, and or you know put all your money into hard assets. There's there, you don't know. We're sitting on this like you said a razor edge. We could fall off either side. Absolutely. Um, and, and so part of me says the extent to which you want to leave your money in, in the financial third-order wealth world, it's paper of some form, 
you got to be right on top of it, like just reading the, the wind every day. Or, or are we going to bust into inflation or deflation? Because, you know, first movers will have some advantage there when the, when the uh, smoke signals finally turn into a, a clear sign we can read. Otherwise, I want to invite people to consider stretching their idea of investment. So I gave an example earlier where I looked at putting, it was, I think, close to 13000 to put these solar panels on my roof. Um, you could look at that as an expense, but I'm looking at it as an investment. I calculated that against what they were going to return in terms of reduced cash flows out my pocket at various, you know, assumed rates of oil, um, to, you know, costs. And so to me, that was an investment. It was, you know, it was a way for me to $15,000 and put it somewhere else where I could guarantee it was going to have a cash flow return to me, plus those resiliency benefits we talked about. So I'm now looking at things like improving my soils or putting in the orchard or uh, putting on these solar panels. These are all investments to me now. And I know a lot of people grew up thinking of investments as involving some flavor of stock or bond or something else. But I think now in this kind of a weird period we're in, it's, it's perfectly legitimate to think of, in particular, energy improvements you can make around your house as one of the smartest, most important investments you can make right now. Because the next energy crisis is not a possibility to me anymore. It is an absolute guarantee. The question is when. And I agree with that 100%. So, so that's the invitation. Stretch what we're going to call an investment. And think about taking cash and putting it to work, if you will, into those things which you can foresee adding to your quality of life in the future. Because I need to keep myself warm or keep myself cool or provide myself food uh, no matter whether I have inflation, deflation, the economy's good, the economy's bad, I need that stuff. What are your thoughts on, let's say, taking third-order wealth and m- moving it into primary wealth, buying land that we can make produce for us, for instance? Oh, I think that's a, it's, it's absolutely uh, the wave of the future. Um, so here's the thing. If, if When the world wakes up to the idea that we're running out of this primary wealth, and by the way, the critical form of primary wealth is energy. As soon as they start to make that, that connection larger scale, you're going to see all this third-order wealth try and squeeze down into that primary wealth world. Guess what? Mm-hmm. There's orders of magnitude more of that third-order wealth than there is primary Exactly. Wealth. The doorway is exactly. not that wide. And they're going to squeeze in, and, and whew, you know, I, I could easily make the case that if you were in a position, if you have any listeners who are in a position, you know, diversifying into productive, and this is the critical bit, productive primary wealth assets, um, that's a really strong, I mean, we could make a very strong investment case for that right now. Now, The reason I asked that, the reason I asked that here toward the end is because I had um, a, uh, a guy on named Mike Gazer, pretty good financial luminary type guy, and I said, what do people do with their money? And one of the things he said was, I absolutely would not buy a house right now. And I took that to be more from an investment standpoint, because I was asking about investing money. So what I took that is I wouldn't go out and start becoming a big landlord or anything right now. But some of my audience took it as like, don't buy land, don't buy property, don't buy a house. And my thought is, if you're sitting on cash now, and you can move into a piece of land that you want to live on, produce with, take from, have, hold. I, I put it back this way today when I was talking on the show that yesterday, yesterday morning that Americans have stopped buying homes they want to die in. Everything's a step up. And, and buying a house that's going to be a homestead is very different from buying a house in the middle of, you know, an urban center that is because it's near trendy shopping. Uh, absolutely. You know, we just, my wife and I, we've been renting for a number of years after, um, after we've been homeowners for 18 years, sold, rented for a while. 
and then just dipped back in in November of 2009, um, so we're coming up on a year. And I know that the house I bought is going to is going to decrease in value. I knew that, but that wasn't its value to me. Its value was it was a place where I could envision putting in the kinds of uh, long term investments I wanted to make, like I put in you know the orchard I talked about, vines, sure. all kinds of things. Time was more important to me than money. At, in my personal circumstance, right? I, I know that I, I can willingly shoulder the loss I'm likely to take in a financial sense on the house. It was more important to me to be getting my homestead in place and, and being able to live the vision, which is a very important thing to me. I, we're, we're creating a, a work of art here, if you will. It, it's, it's a creative output as well as something that you know meets our resiliency test. And yes, it, it might be very important things that we're doing if the future unfolds in a couple of ways. Plus, there's no loss unless you actually sell the property. If you intend to stay put, you have to live somewhere. And like you said, there could be this crisis in between where property values drop. But at some point, as all that third-level wealth starts trying to buy land, and we're seeing it now, the billionaires, the Jim Rogers, George Soros, these guys, where are they putting their money right now? They're buying farmland. They're buying mining operations. They're buying resources. They're taking all of that cash. And they're getting out of dollars. They're getting out of. They're getting out of foreign currencies. They're putting it into that primary wealth. And you and I, we can't go out and buy a gold mine. We can't go out and buy uh, half a million acres of, of Midwest farmland. But we can buy ten acres, or five acres, or one acre, and we can make it produce for our family. Absolutely. And, and there's two things I see out there that that interest me at this point in time. One is good farmland. And so, um, you know, you need some specialization here to know when you look at a piece of land, to know whether the farmer who has been farming it has basically strip mined it and ruined the soil. Sure. Or whether yeah. it's still good productive land, right? And, and with farmland, you got to have the water issues worked out, right? So make sure you understand Absolutely. where the water is coming from. And then the second thing is, I mean, I'm interested in, in uh, forest land at this point in time, because I truly believe that you know, when oil goes through its next price spike, people are going to turn to heating with wood again or gasifying wood or doing whatever it is. But we're going to be using biomass again as, as a means to generate uh, energy for ourselves. And so, you know, I think that there's, it's, it's not quite, farm, the, you know, the prices haven't quite come down far enough to make me say it's, it's uh, like a slam dunk um, buy at this point in time. But we're getting closer, um, you know. And, so, and since we don't know what's going to happen, like you said, this is an opportunity. I put it this way. Back in, in 2008 when I first started doing the show and I said the, the, this big financial crash is coming. The, the, I was screaming, get your money out of the stock market, what have you. I was also saying if you've been playing it smart up till now and if you take your profits down and if you just wait and you be patient, it might not be the best sale that ever happens, but from you know 2009 forward, the whole world's going on sale. And I think we're still there. I like it. Just because the store might drop the price tomorrow doesn't mean that the buy is not a good buy today. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the way I'm looking at it because you're doing the same thing. By the time you solidify what you're doing there, and somebody says, "Well, Chris, you, you'd get fifty thousand left if you sold your house less if you sold your house today and you put it into it." I don't care. I'm not going anywhere. You couldn't get me out of here with dynamite. And then the, I've had renters say, well, you know, my, my landlord lets me grow a garden and all. I find that risky because if times get really tough, your lease expires, you put that great garden in, get out, buddy. Right? I've got your garden now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you there. So, you know, we really are kindred spirits on this, it sounds like. And um, it, it's just amazing to me how how many people are coming to these to these sorts of conclusions now. I can feel that that sort of tipping point. It's like a cultural moment where, where people finally, you know, get the message and go, wow, things are really different. What do I need to do? And 
um, you know, unfortunately, I wish I wish we could fit this all in a pamphlet, but it's it's just too complicated. <laughs> you know, there's there's so yeah. many individual decisions, and you know, the 18 year old without any debt in Kansas City has a different solution than the 80 year old uh, retiree in, in in the Bronx. You know, there's just there's just everything in between. And so what it really means is, you know, this is something where, you know, when I say community, one of the most important things is I want people to get together and start talking about it, getting, you know, there's nothing more important than having this conversation we're having across the country by phone than to have the same conversation with the people in your community, where you live, and finding out, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the wrinkles that you have to deal with because it, it, it varies drastically by location. Drastically. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I think that um, if everybody would do the things we're talking about, it's not that the crises won't come, but they won't be individually as as dramatic. I, what I say is if you prepare the right way, a disaster becomes an inconvenience. Um, and, you know, I've, I've loved having you on today. I know I kept you long. I know I went through a tremendous uh, variation, but it's because I've dug into your work really deep, and I wanted the audience to get a real feel for how much depth is there that you're just not another guy that I brought on the show that you're, you're a guy that I think can really help people and has a very common mission to the community that we've built here. Uh, folks, I want you to check out Chris's site. I want you to check out crash course, it, it, uh, the crash course. Chris, if people want to find more about your work, where do they do that? Well, they can go to chrismartinson.com and that last name is spelled M A R T E N S O N. So chrismartinson.com, you land on a home page, and there's a big button there if you want to start taking the crash course. Uh, you just click on it. It's free. Um, you can get through the course that way. And then, um, uh, you know, our site is, is pretty rich. We've got, you know, people who've, you know, really uh, active forum members contributing, and we've got a, a variety of series on uh, what should I do, just covering some of the basics. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that's, that's our work right now. Is I, I run around trying to convince people that um, the future might be different than the past, maybe disruptively different, and that uh, prudent people should, should really uh, be thinking about how they're going to, you know, make simple changes today that will, that will be like uh, the most important insurance policy they ever bought, potentially, at some point in the future. You know, again, maybe you, insurance you, policy you don't you don't ever. I never want to cash in my my house fire insurance policy, but boy, sure. If you have to, you'll be really glad you had it. Glad um, you had it, right? Yeah. Um, you also you mentioned a book. Is there anything else? Is some new stuff you're working on? You want to let people know about? Well, we've got uh, the book is coming out in March, and uh, we've got a couple of new um, shorter video versions of the crash course uh, that were just about ready to release, uh, which people would be able to play in their. Um, uh, local community cable access is one avenue we're hoping to get that out at. Awesome, um, awesome. And uh, and so yeah, we're just constantly just trying to figure out what can we do to be more effective, get our message out, um, get people talking about this. And uh, it really feels like um, it was a slog for a while, but now it's it's pretty obvious that um, uh, the world is the world is coming around to this. Uh, and oh, by the way, they're coming around faster in Europe than they are here. I, yeah, I think it's because they live closer together and they can see it happening quicker. Uh, and they've already done a lot of the things that we think are our long-term solutions, and they're seeing that you know, they have more mass transit, they have more alternative energy, and it's still not enough. So we think we'll fix it with that. They've already done that, and they're going, it's still not enough, so 
they're more in touch with it. Folks, there's another thing I want you guys to know about Chris. I heard, as I was going through some of your newer material, I heard you say something in one of your presentations that really helped me identify with you more as an individual because I feel the same way. You said that when you put Crash Course together, you didn't sell it, you didn't package it and, and, and make it a corporate presentation that could be purchased. Uh, you gave it away for free. And it's probably the best work you've ever done in your life. And you gave it away. And when you did that, I've watched you grow from, you know, just a guy trying to get a message out to a, a thriving community. And I think that more and more people are waking up to that. That's how I feel about the show. I feel like I, this is episode 515. Uh, they're an hour long heat. So it's a lot of time that I've put in and I've done this at, at no cost and I've given away everything that I know about how to, how to fix things. And I brought on guys like you to help, uh, add to that. When you give things away, folks, it always comes back to you. And if you want to know if you can trust a person, if you want to know if you can trust their intention, look at how much they've given. And, and Chris, I want to thank you from our community to your community for how much you've given. Uh, thank you for that. That, that means a lot to me because um, uh, I knew when I was giving it away that, A, I had to do it, and, B, it was a horrible business decision. Um, you know, and, uh, <laughs> it was probably the best business decision you could have made, though, looking back at it now. Well, I, I'll be honest with you. Um, uh, yes, I, I would love to, um, you know, make a good living at something, but more important to me is, is I really, really want the future to turn out uh, as best it possibly can. And, and so to me, the number one thing, my mission is I want to create a tipping point of awareness. I want us to have substantive discussions about what's really going on, I want to let the data do the talking, not politics, not partisanship. I don't care what religion you belong to. I don't care, you know, how old you are. I don't care how much money you have. We all need to be in this conversation together. And so there was no way for me to, to, to do anything other than what I did, which was uh, that's my mission, so I have to give this away. Chris, thank you for, for being here today. And I want to throw out an invitation to you. If you ever want to come back on this show to discuss anything, because I know any question I asked you today, we could have went for an hour on that one question. Again, I spread you out so the audience could get a feel for how much depth you have. Um, you are welcome back. And unlike a lot of people on the radio that say that to, to end an interview in a friendly manner, I absolutely mean it. Anytime you need to get back on this show to get any message out, you get in touch with me and we'll bring you back. Because I'm sure the audience is going to want you back. Thank you, Jack. It's been a real pleasure. And with that, folks, I'm going to wrap up. Today, this has been Jack Spirico and Chris Martinson helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they are. Well, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Survival Podcast Friday Flashbacks. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider becoming an MSB member. Just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You can also support our show by going to TSPAZ, that's T-S-P-A-Z, TSPAZ.com. Anytime you shop online, and while you'll support us no matter what you buy, you will find over 500 reviews of items I have personally tested and vouched for. And to stay in touch with us and never miss anything, follow our channel or our group on Telegram. You can find links to that and all our social media options. Just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and check the show notes for any episode.